the future of Afghanistan. I don't think that's going to work, you know, in defeating the Taliban. I think the likely outcome is something that looks a lot like the 1990s, where the Taliban controls most but not all of the country, and you have kind of an ongoing conflict and a, obviously a humanitarian catastrophe as a result. UN Climate Report. It is no longer a probability, you know, there's a 95% chance. It is actually established as a fact, an established fact that humans are warming the planet. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASFI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Since the withdrawal of US and Allied troops from Afghanistan, the Taliban has conducted a military offensive across the country, which has seen them capture a number of provincial capitals, including most recently the country's third largest city, Herat. Anastasia Kapetis speaks to counterinsurgency expert Dr. David Kilcullen about the future of governance in Afghanistan. They also discuss the geopolitics of the region, including China and Pakistan's interests, and how the United States could respond as the Taliban continues its advance toward the capital. Welcome, David Kilcullen. This morning we're going to be talking about Afghanistan. What is the likely trajectory of these very fast-moving developments there? David, in terms of the news flow, every day there's a new city that's been taken by the Taliban. A Taliban victory of some sorts is expected. What does a, a theoretical Taliban victory look like? Is one possible? Well, I think it's very possible that there will be a, a Taliban victory. But I think you're right to ask the question, you know, what does that actually look like? And I think most of us that watch it closely expect the Taliban to end up controlling almost all of the countryside, most of the key access points into and out of Afghanistan. They'll probably end up controlling some, but not all, of the major cities and most of the ring road, which is the, the road network that connects those cities. And I'd say about two-thirds to three-quarters of the Afghan population. I think it's unlikely that they'll take Kabul in the short term, but I think Mazari sharif in the north is the next key target. And then cities like Herat in the west, Jalalabad and Ghazni in the east, and Kandahar in the south. And Kandahar is by far the most important of those because it's the sort of ancestral stomping ground of the Taliban. And it's likely to be a pretty major battle over that city. Right now, though, they're focusing on the north of the country. And what they're trying to do is to stop the government from consolidating in a northern bastion, which is what they did in the 1990s. I think it's unlikely, though, that the Taliban will be able to stop them from consolidating, you know, in at least some enclaves in the north. There's now the so-called popular uprising forces that are standing up across the country to oppose the Taliban, sort of warlord-led militias. And the government in Kabul today announced a new so-called public forces command center, which is basically bringing the former warlords into a joint command structure to try to bring some unity to the opposition against the Taliban. I don't think that's going to work, you know, in defeating the Taliban. I think the likely outcome is something that looks a lot like the 1990s, where the Taliban controls most but not all of the country, and you have kind of an ongoing conflict and a, obviously a humanitarian catastrophe as a result. That just gets to kind of another point. In the areas that the Taliban are likely to control, how will they govern? And I'm thinking in terms of both political cohesion, um, but also sources of revenue. So the Taliban have improved very significantly in their ability to govern since when they were the actual government, ironically. They have a lot of trained governance 
cadres that they've deployed in many parts of the country. They are much better at communications and messaging, far, far better than they were last time around. They've got a very robust local taxation structure that allows them to acquire significant revenue from the population. They also skim money from you know, agricultural and drug businesses and, and others like timber and pine nuts and a, a variety of crops. They have a very effective, although not particularly elaborate, local court and legal structure. And they have provincial sort of shadow governments at the district, city and province level. So they've got the sort of rudiments of a government structure. They even have guerrilla governance structures in major cities. So I think that's important. I think the other point would be that Afghanistan has nine international crossing points. As of this morning, the Taliban have captured six out of the nine. That's reduced government revenue by about 50%. And that revenue is now coming to the Taliban. They're actually gaining a significant amount of money by controlling those international crossing points. I think you pointed to the key issue, though, that they're going to have in governance, which is going to be unity. They are very factionalized. We have actually spent a lot of time disrupting their leadership structure over the last decade or so. They're very cliquish across the regions. And in fact, under Mullah Mansour, who was the immediate past leader of the Taliban, there was actually open revolts by different regional Taliban groups in the Northeast and the West against Quetta Shura. And there was a lot of accusations of corruption that led to sort of a breakdown of Taliban cohesion. Mullah Haibatullah, who's now in charge of the group, has been successful in really unifying people around a single vision. And they're much better than they were under Mullah Mansour, but still pretty factionalized. And, you know, you get young, aggressive field commanders who often act independently and have to be disciplined by the older leaders. The um, Rabari Shura in Quetta has had some pretty strong differences of opinion in the past with the northern Shuras in places like Peshawar and Miran Shah. But I think what we're likely to see is in the initial push, they'll probably unify and pull together, you know, as they work against the government in Kabul but then likely fall out with each other once they succeed in, in pushing the government out of areas that they want to control. And of course, we should note that there's a long-standing and pretty intensive conflict between the Taliban and ISIS Khorasan, the Islamic State group in the region. So it, it won't be a fully unified front, but I think it's more than capable of governing in the short term. And of course, you know, much more effective than the actual government who are currently fleeing a lot of these areas. Yeah. So where is the Haqqani network in all of this? I saw that there's a report last year that they were working with Chinese intelligence, for example, to round up Uyghurs. There was a New York Times piece again last year where Sirajuddin Haqqani implied that the network will have a strong hand in the next iteration of the Afghan state. Do you think that's probable? Yeah, I do. It has suited both the Taliban leadership and the Haqqanis to performatively pretend that the Haqqani network is different from the Taliban. In fact, it, it's fully integrated with the Taliban. So Sirajuddin mm -hmm. is officially a member of the Rabari Shura, his second in command on the Taliban's military side. The Taliban have used Haqqani assault troops as kind of shock troops but while maintaining that useful fiction of being a different organization. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think one of the defining features of the Haqqanis is that they're probably the closest element within the Taliban to ISI, the, the Pakistani Intelligence Services Directorate S, and others in the Pakistani military. Mm -hmm. 
and I think that's what partially explains their current behavior and their attitude to the the Uyghurs, but also groups like the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and others, where the Pakistanis and the Chinese are both very concerned about the possibility of extremism spilling over into their own territory. And the Haqqanis tend to play a role supporting Chinese and Pakistani interests while still being part of the broader Taliban coalition. So that, that's how I'd interpret what we're going to see. And I would certainly think that Sirajuddin's right, that the Haqqanis will have a strong hand in the next iteration of the Afghan state to the extent that the Taliban can actually form one. What then might you know, Imran Khan, Pakistan's chief of army, DGISI, be preparing for right now? It's not as if their own insurgency problem has gone away at all over the last decade. Yeah. And looking at groups like the TTP, what do you think they're going to be most worried about? So officially, Pakistan is seeking a negotiated outcome, right? They facilitated the 2020 Taliban-US agreement. The National Security Advisor of Pakistan, Moed Yusuf, said this week that Pakistan won't accept what he called a forceful takeover in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and said that Islamabad supports a political solution. So officially, they're seeking to avoid Afghanistan again becoming a Taliban-dominated pariah state. That said, ISI and some elements of the army have covertly backed uh, or at least engaged with the Afghan Taliban for decades, and they still tend to see them as an insurance policy against Indian influence in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And you would have noted that Pakistani Foreign Minister Qureshi this week really strongly rejected blame being cast on Pakistan for backing the Taliban <laughs> and instead blamed India for scapegoating Islamabad in the UN. I suspect General Bajwa, the, the head of the army, is pretty concerned about potential refugee flow into Pakistan. Mm. The EU is actually promising assistance to all of Afghanistan's neighbours, and I think Pakistan will be looking for that assistance to help them mm. handle the, the influx. But, of course, the army's the ones that will have to manage that in the short term, and it would probably also further disrupt the border areas where they're already having significant issues with the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, the, the Pakistani Taliban. And I think they would also be concerned about the potential for a significant morale boost for extremists such as Islamic State, Pakistani Taliban and other groups as a result of a sort of Taliban victory, which is likely to really motivate people uh, having now you know, defeated the Russians mm. and uh, the Americans in their eyes, likely to give them a pretty big impetus. One issue that could potentially mitigate a lot of those Pakistani concerns would be if China, which of course is Pakistan's major ally and closest economic partner, would end up playing a bigger role in Afghanistan. And potentially that would kind of balance Indian influence in Afghanistan. And that would then reduce the need that a lot of Pakistanis have felt in the past to you know, keep the Afghan Taliban around as a counterbalance to India. Do you think it's likely that Beijing will take a bigger role, security role in Afghanistan? Yeah, I do, actually. And I think the Chinese have really got two key interests that somewhat compete with each other, but they're going to be very energetic in pursuing those. So one of them, obviously, is preserving their economic interests in Afghanistan. So the Belt and Road Initiative doesn't formally go through Afghanistan, but it does play a very big role in Pakistan. And the Chinese have just signed a deal with Iran, a 25-year economic cooperation agreement and a security cooperation agreement with Tehran. And so access through Afghanistan will make a very big difference to mm -hmm. the success of that. And I think China does see it itself playing a really important regional economic role in Afghanistan. 
And then the second set of objectives is to avoid any spillover of Islamic extremism into southwestern China, particularly Xinjiang. So they're playing a, a balancing game here. Interestingly, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi at the end of July described the Taliban as key players in any future Afghanistan and said they have to be taken seriously. But he also called for a negotiated outcome, unsurprisingly taking a very similar line to the Pakistani line on, on that. The Afghan Taliban sent a delegation under Mullah Barada, who's effectively their foreign minister, their senior mm. uh, foreign policy guy, to meet with Wang Yi and other Chinese diplomats in Tianjin in late July. And that was a very publicly telegraphed meeting. And effectively, that was Beijing conferring de facto legitimacy on the Taliban as recognized diplomatic interlocutors and, and key players. So that's a pretty big departure from Beijing and a pretty significant message, I think, to the government in Kabul, even though at the same time, Wang Yi called for a peaceful solution based on negotiation. And of course, that's very important for the Chinese because of all the mineral and other resources that they own already in Afghanistan, and they want yeah. to preserve access to that. How would, in a future scenario, the Chinese react to some kind of Taliban blackmail, if you like, around their interests? And I'm thinking here about, you know, hostage taking, perhaps, of Chinese workers or officials, or essentially looking for ways to leverage the Chinese in particular ways that Beijing might not be comfortable with. How would Beijing, you know, respond to that kind of very Afghan scenario? Yeah, it is a very Afghan scenario, isn't it? Look, I think the I would point to two possible ways that the Taliban might, you know, try to exercise a bit of leverage with the Chinese. One would be, you know, the Taliban traditionally had a very close relationship with Uyghur militant groups, many of whom are now fighting in Syria, and a lot of them have sought to return to Afghanistan and perhaps to move from there into China. I think how the Taliban treat those groups going forward is going to be a very key indicator mm -hmm. of how they plan to manage their relationship with the Chinese. So they could be sort of holding them on a leash and saying, you know, you don't want to go against their interests because we could always unleash these Uyghur groups. That's yeah. one possibility. I think another possibility is the pressure that the Taliban could put on Chinese interests in Afghanistan in terms of workers or road access or the ability to extract materials and so on. So I think that's the second way. The bottom line is we don't really know yet how it will play out. But in terms of the Taliban's track record, they don't have a particularly good track record of keeping control of their local hotheads. And I suspect that that would be the excuse they would turn to, you know, to try to deflect any Chinese pushback if they were to engage in that. One way the Chinese might seek to mitigate that would be to put in private security or other assets that may or may not be linked to the PLA as a way of giving them some military yeah. leverage while maintaining their official policy of non-interference in, in other countries. Yes, yeah, so I was just looking at an ABC headline this morning that says something like China pins hopes for regional stability on Taliban in Afghanistan. And that seems to me to be a pretty fragile yes. uh, hope. Absolutely. And again, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be talked into the Taliban propaganda line that a Taliban complete victory is inevitable and everyone just needs to get comfortable with that, which seems yeah. to be what people are adopting, you know, in the White House and elsewhere. It's not lost yet. And it may very well be that the Taliban never succeed in fully dominating the country. And China could find itself stuck on sort of one side or maybe both sides of a humanitarian disaster that's a military yeah. stalemate. So we've talked about China. Let's just very briefly before we wrap up, talk about Washington and what it might need to do, what it might do in terms of how this plays out over the next few months. 
What is the conversation in Washington at the moment? There isn't much of a conversation, actually. You would have thought that losing five provincial capitals in a weekend and, you know, 900 or so civilians being killed and just huge Taliban surge would have brought at least some recognition from the White House that Mm -hmm. the policy is not working. We didn't see that. In fact, we saw a senior official speaking off the record saying that President Biden's aware of what's going on and has no plans to change course. So I suspect we're not going to see a change of course from Washington. That's a pity because there are still significant things that Washington could do on a military level, but I don't think we're likely to see them do that. Instead, we're hearing platitudes from one side of politics talking about how tragic it is that interpreters are getting swept up in the conflict and different platitudes from the other side talking about how the the Afghans need to hang tough and stand up to the Taliban and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, at this point, it's not a matter of motivation. The the Afghans are fighting really, really hard. It's a matter of logistics and air power and like hard military issues that are causing them to fail at present. But unfortunately, I don't see any likelihood that the White House at the moment is going to change Again, course. Again, just really briefly, just say that White House did decide to change course. What would be the top three things that they could do to turn the situation around a little bit? Well, the top one thing right now is air power, right? The, the reason that the Taliban are winning is because the Afghans can't move around the country yeah. to respond effectively. And that's because they've lost about a yeah. third of their air force. They've run out of rockets They don't have maintainers anymore to keep the aircraft in the air. And I think a radical increase in the amount of air support for the Afghans, plus probably deploying some kind of air asset to Kabul, where the airport is still obviously in government hands, that would avoid the situation we have now where aircraft have to fly about a 16-hour round trip from the Middle East and only spend about an hour over Afghanistan. So that would be a significant issue. A second one would be supporting the Afghans on the intelligence front and helping them to get better understanding of where the next Taliban offensives are likely to come, which would then allow them to preempt those instead of having to be reactive all the time. And then I highly doubt, again, that any of this is going to happen. But if the US was willing to put a small ground component back in, then special forces teams to advise and support some of the Afghan special forces would be critical. And the other critical element would be what are called JTACs, Joint Terminal Air Controllers, so people to actually control the air power. You know, I recommended this four months ago and it sort of made sense then, but I think at this point we're going over the waterfall and adding more at this point is, is yeah. pretty unlikely to, to make a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, David. We'll leave it there for the moment, but look forward to talking to you again, probably about this situation in a couple of months' time to see how where we are then. Yeah, it's a fast-moving uh, set of circumstances. Great. Thank you. Earlier this week, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its sixth assessment report. The report found that the world is likely to hit 1.5 degrees of warming by 2030, if we continue on our current trajectory. Dr. Robert Glasser speaks to one of the report's contributing authors, Professor Mark Howden. They discuss some of the report's findings, climate risks for Australia, and the policy responses required to address this global challenge. Well, Mark, it's great having you here on our podcast to talk about this critical, I know the press has described it as a landmark report from the uh, UN IPCC. Maybe just to start, can you just say a few words about the significance of these reports? Thanks, Robert. So this is 
the sixth in a line of assessments that go back to the 1980s when the IPCC was first established. And progressively over those different reports, what we've seen is strengthening of language in relation to both the evidence that humans are influencing our climate already and also in terms of the likely changes under different scenarios of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and so much more solid every step we take, every assessment, we have more confidence in the results. And in particular, the message here in terms of, say, the human influence on climate change is it is now unequivocal that humans are influencing the global climate, that they're warming the globe. And this warming affects every continent, every region, every ocean across the globe. So there is nowhere you can go to escape the influence here. It is truly global warming. And really importantly, when I say unequivocal, it's actually explicitly framed as a fact. It is no longer a probability. You know, there's a 95% chance. It is actually established as a fact, an established fact that humans are warming the planet. Which just goes to how seriously for scientists to say this, where saying anything as an absolute goes against the grain. The evidence must be pretty overwhelming at this point. Oh, indeed. And so the multiple streams of evidence are massive that, that link human activities to this warming that we're seeing. What I've observed from each report every time a new report comes out is that generally the science, the earlier science, underestimates the impact. And each consecutive report, as the uncertainty diminishes, the risks seem to go up. In fact, I was trying to think of a single major risk that has diminished as a result of decreased uncertainty. Are you? Can you think of any where that's the case? Not really. I think, generally speaking, the more we look, the worse it becomes, is, I think, a fairly straightforward statement of what we're seeing. At one point in time, there was a, a point where the sea level rise scenarios actually decreased. There was, I think, between the third and fourth assessment. But since then, it's continued to expand. And just as an example of how that particular component is being reframed in this report. So it provides, the, the in a sense, the core likely range of sea level rise under different emission scenarios. And so, for example, under a low emission scenario, by the end of the century, sea level could go up by half a metre under a high emission scenario up by one metre. But that isn't the full range of possibilities. And so, in fact, in the summary for policymakers of this report, it says quite explicitly, sea level rise could go up by five metres by 2150. We can't discount that that could occur. So we can't say that that will not occur. And so that's just recognising that there's tales of these distributions, which could be quite extreme, well beyond in a sense, the, the core part of the distribution that we tend to communicate. I think that's right. And really that tail goes off the charts when you look at some of these possible impacts. And I guess this is a, another element that distinguishes this report from previous reports. It does seem as though the, there's much more, I don't know, direct is the right word, language about tipping points in these extreme events. The IPC is incorporating that in these reports much more directly, I think, than certainly the last one. I think the, there's multiple things that should happen which reinforce some of those ideas, but more so than just those sort of threshold sort of elements there, which, which is, I think, still in some cases in a relatively new areas of science rather than bedded down areas of science. But since the last report in 2013, we've obviously got an extra eight years of data. So we've seen how the Earth has warmed and uh, extremes have evolved in that time. 
and you know just think back you know a couple of weeks with you know the fires in Greece and in in the US and the massive heat wave event in northwestern US in Canada so you know more data we also have much better sensors so we've got more ways of collecting data and better ways of collecting data we've also gone backwards in time so we've collected a lot of the historical you know things like ship measurements of temp ocean temperature um, paleo records from fossils, from, from tree ring data and from ice core data. And then we can put all of that together into an analysis. And, and, and that's what we call when we've got multiple lines of evidence. When, when all of these things add up, it's actually much stronger than if any one of those lines of evidence is used. And so increasingly in these reports, we see multiple lines of evidence being the basis of making statements. So this report has now highlighted that virtually no place globally is untouched by the human-caused climate warming signal. There's also some interesting points about, is it too late? How close are we to surpassing 1.5 degrees? And this, maybe it would be really useful if you could clarify something for listeners, because there is this sense that 1.5 is, you know, it's a firm number. But I know in this report, we talk about overshooting and then coming back. So that's one bit of complexity around that number. The second is, I know that most of the modeling suggests that if all greenhouse gas emissions ceased in 2019, the planet would continue to warm by more than 1.5 degrees, and that this also applied to earlier CM5 models as well. So that's a second area of complexity when we talk about the models. And the third is just this question about warming over what period of time. If we're talking about 2100 or any impacts like, say, sea level rise, you can look at 2100, or you can look over centuries and you see that the impacts are enormous. So there's a, a lot of complexity around the number and the impacts, and, and that's a mouthful to explain. So I hope you could explain it better than I asked the question. So the challenge for me is for my answer to be shorter than the question. <laughs> so, um, so look, slightly reversing the order is that, yes, we do have committed warming. So even if we stop producing greenhouse gases, we would still have some warming of the planet. The, the exact number of that is a matter for debate. We also have committed change processes, some of which are largely irreversible. So, for example, sea level rise will continue for centuries, even if we put the brakes on greenhouse gas emissions and to all intents and purposes, irreversible. We also have, to all intents and purposes, irreversible change in relation to acidification of the oceans, uh, deoxygenation of the oceans, melting of glaciers and breakdown to the extent we've seen so far of ice sheets. All of those things will take centuries to rebuild, uh, centuries to build those glaciers back up to where they were, as an example. And and the last point is uh, 1.5 degrees. And, and of course, 1.5 is a number established through a political process. It's you know very useful from the point of view of the politics of the Paris Agreement, etc. In a science sense, there's no particular preference for aiming at 1.5 versus 1.6 or 1.54 or any, anything like that. But as a goal, as a global goal, what we're seeing is really worrying that we may well um, exceed 1.5 in the 2030s. It's, it's quite likely that we will do that. If we stay on a high emissions trajectory, we will actually possibly reach 1.5 degrees this decade. So in the latter part of this decade. So that sort of tells us that the the speed and the rapidity, the urgency of responding to this is actually quite pronounced it. And this, 
report, even though it doesn't necessarily bring those dates forward. So there has been some media that says, you know, it's going to happen earlier than possible. And, and that's not quite right. But what it does is really emphasize that it provides increased confidence of when we think 1.5 is going to be exceeded and the implied political pain that that's going to cause once that happens. And actually, this it's a good segue into the question of what 1.5 degrees of warming means in our region in particular, and where we've seen, as you and I have discussed, recent uh, studies that suggest Indonesia in particular, but maritime Southeast Asia, that sea level is rising faster there than in other places for a variety of reasons, not just climate change. And so 1.5 degrees I know the previous IPCC study commented on 70 to 90% of coral reef systems collapsing at around 1.5 degrees. So what do you say about impacts at 1.5 degrees and then also moving on from 1.5 to 2 or possibly 3? Thanks, Robert. That 1.5 versus 2 contrast was the core part of the IPCC special report for 1.5 degrees produced three years ago. And, and what that showed was perhaps for many people, surprising degree of increase in risk moving from 1.5 to 2. So whether it was water resources or extreme events or sea level rise, that difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees made a, a very substantial change in the risk profile. And of course, that then means we have to respond more significantly in terms of adaptation. So we have to invest more in terms of adaptation to manage that increased risk. And so I think that's a core part of it. You mentioned the damage to coral reefs. So, you know, 1.5 significant damage by the time you reach two, almost total loss. You know, that was the message coming out of that 1.5 degrees report. So a very big difference for what sounds like a small number. And I think increasingly what we'll, we'll see is that that context of what's the additional risk that we're taking, what's the cost of that will become more and more apparent in the debates um, over the next couple of years. So as we improve our economic analysis of what happens if we don't get in control of climate change versus what happens if we do. So some, for example, some recent Australian analysis indicates that difference is something like $17 trillion a year in terms of cost, additional cost that we bear across the economy. I think one of the issues highlighted both in the summary and I think that I assume will appear also in the formal document after all the editing is this idea of compound hazards and cascading impacts from these hazards. And I think for me, I know the science has had a hard time capturing that because it's very complex to do that, but it's really good to see this report highlighting that you can have these simultaneous events, as we're seeing actually with the current meandering jet stream in the Northern Hemisphere occurring simultaneously in different parts of the planet. And these can have knock-on effects, of course, in terms of the impacts. Yeah, and you're quite right. And you're raising that thing about what's happening in multiple places because of a particular known process. But within those places, um, you're getting you know, extraordinary heat. You're also getting extraordinary fires. You're also getting extraordinary load on your electricity system and on your water system. You're getting extraordinary load on your hospital system. And these things pile together so that, you know, that's not just a single factor. Now we need to think of multiple factors interacting. And actually that issue of scale, it's a global scale. This can, these things are happening regionally. They're happening nationally as well with our Black Summer, where we saw drought, extreme heat triggering bushfires that generate their own fire weather, which then increase the impacts causing a air quality crisis, a biodiversity crisis, an economic crisis, and actually almost a water supply crisis for Sydney 
So these things are happening more rapidly. Mark, why is it not too late? Because we don't want people to be despondent in, in the wake of this report. What, how do you respond to people who say it's too late and why should they keep working on this issue, the importance of this issue? So what this report, because it is very much focused on the physical climate science, not on the impacts and adaptation side, nor, nor is it on the uh, mitigation side, the emission reduction pathways. But what it does is it shows very, very stark differences between the consequences of a high emission scenario versus the consequences of a low emission scenario. And for me, that says a really clear thing that we can choose the future that we end up having climatically. We can choose our climate future. The ball is in our court in terms of whether we go for a really risky future or a much more benign future. And so that's a really important statement. The way in which we get to there is the topic of the subsequent IPCC reports. And, and so that will sort of cover the things, how do you move off one scenario of emissions into another? How do you overcome the barriers, the various barriers to that? And what are the opportunities uh, in doing that? And so you'll have to wait till March for that report until February for the impacts and adaptation report but I think they're both going to be of interest to the audience that we've got today. Well, Mark, you're the vice chair of one of those reports. So I want to, first of all, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And that even more fundamentally, thank you for the work you're doing in the science of climate change that is helping us awaken to the challenge that lies ahead and also that will contribute to action to reduce the impacts. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much, Robert. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Dr. David Kilcullen, Professor of International and Political Studies at UNSW Canberra, and former soldier, diplomat, and advisor to the US government. Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Center, and Professor Mark Howden, Director of ANU's Institute for Climate, Energy, and Disaster Solutions, and Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.